Part One G of Auguste Comte and Positivism. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Auguste Comte and Positivism, by John Stuart Mill. Part One G. This, however, notwithstanding its importance, is, in a comprehensive view of universal history, only a matter of detail. We find no fundamental errors in M. Comte's general conception of history. He is singularly exempt from most of the twists and exaggerations which we are used to find in almost all thinkers who meddle with speculations of this character. Scarcely any of them is so free, for example, from the opposite errors of ascribing too much or too little influence to accident, and to the qualities of individuals. The vulgar mistake of supposing that the course of history has no tendencies of its own, and that great events usually proceed from small causes, or that kings, or conquerors, or the founders of philosophies and religions can do with society what they please, no one has more completely avoided or more tellingly exposed. But he is equally free from the error of those who ascribe all to general causes, and imagine that neither casual circumstances, nor governments by their acts, nor individuals of genius by their thoughts, materially accelerate or retard human progress. This is the mistake which pervades the instructive writings of the thinker who in England and in our own times bore the nearest, though a very remote, resemblance to M. Comte, the lamented Mr. Buckle, who, had he not been unhappily cut off in an early stage of his labours, and before the complete maturity of his powers, would probably have thrown off an error, the more to be regretted as it gives a colour to the prejudice which regards the doctrine of the invariability of natural laws as identical with fatalism. Mr. Buckle also fell into another mistake which M. Comte avoided, that of regarding the intellectual as the only progressive element in man, and the moral as too much the same at all times to affect even the annual average of crime. M. Comte shows, on the contrary, a most acute sense of the causes which elevate or lower the general level of moral excellence and deems intellectual progress in no other way so beneficial as by creating a standard to guide the moral sentiments of mankind, and a mode of bringing those sentiments effectively to bear on conduct. M. Comte is equally free from the error of considering any practical rule or doctrine that can be laid down in politics as universal and absolute. All political truth he deems strictly relative, implying as its correlative a given state or situation of society. This conviction is now common to him with all thinkers who are on a level with the age, and comes so naturally to any intelligent reader of history, that the only wonder is how men could have been prevented from reaching it sooner. It marks one of the principal differences between the political philosophy of the present time and that of the past, but M. Comte adopted it when the opposite mode of thinking was still general, and there are few thinkers to whom the principle owes more in the way of comment and illustration. Again, while he sets forth the historical succession of systems of belief and forms of political society, and places in the strongest light those imperfections in each which make it impossible that any of them should be final, this does not make him for a moment unjust to the men or the opinions of the past. He accords with generous recognition the gratitude due to all who, with whatever imperfections of doctrine or even of conduct, contributed materially to the work of human improvement. In all past modes of thought and forms of society he acknowledged a useful, in many a necessary, office, 
in carrying mankind through one stage of improvement into a higher the theological spirit in its successive forms the metaphysical in its principal varieties are honoured by him for the services they rendered in bringing mankind out of pristine savagery into a state in which more advanced modes of belief became possible his list of heroes and benefactors of mankind includes not only every important name in the scientific movement from thales of miletus to fourier the mathematician and blainville the biologist and in the aesthetic from homer to manzoni but the most illustrious names in the annals of the various religions and philosophies and the really great politicians in all states of society footnote at a somewhat later period m comte drew up what he termed a positivist calendar in which every day was dedicated to some benefactor of humanity generally with the addition of a similar but minor luminary to be celebrated in the room of his principal each bisextile year in this no kind of human eminence really useful is omitted except that which is merely negative and destructive on this principle which is avowed the french philosophes as such are excluded those only among them being admitted who like voltaire and diderot had claims to admission on other grounds and the protestant religious reformers are left out entirely with the curious exception of george fox who is included we presume in consideration of his peace principles End footnote. above all he has the most profound admiration for the services rendered by christianity and by the church of the middle ages his estimate of the catholic period is such as the majority of englishmen from whom we take the liberty to differ would deem exaggerated if not absurd the great men of christianity from st paul to st francis of assisi receive his warmest homage nor does he forget the greatness even of those who lived and thought in the centuries in which the catholic church having stopped short while the world had gone on had become a hindrance to progress instead of a promoter of it such men as fenelon and st vincent de paul bossuet and joseph de mestre a more comprehensive and in the primitive sense of the term more catholic sympathy and reverence towards real worth and every kind of service to humanity we have not met with in any thinker men who would have torn each other in pieces who even tried to do so if each usefully served in his own way the interests of mankind are all hallowed to him neither is his a cramped and contracted notion of human excellence which cares only for certain forms of development he not only personally appreciates but rates high in moral value the creations of poets and artists in all departments deeming them by their mixed appeal to the sentiments and the understanding admirably fitted to educate the feelings of abstract thinkers and enlarge the intellectual horizon of people of the world footnote he goes still further and deeper in a subsequent work la ramen doucement à la réalité les contemplations trop abstraites du théorien tandis qu'il pousse noblement le praticien aux spéculations désintéressées système de politique positive one two eighty seven footnote he regards the law of progress as applicable in spite of appearances to poetry and art as much as to science and politics the common impression to the contrary he ascribes solely to the fact that the perfection of aesthetic creation requires as its condition a consentaneousness in the feelings of mankind 
which depends for its existence on a fixed and settled state of opinions. While the last five centuries have been a period not of settling, but of unsettling and decomposing, the most general beliefs and sentiments of mankind, the numerous monuments of poetic and artistic genius which the modern mind has produced even under this great disadvantage, are, he maintains, sufficient proof what great productions it will be capable of, when one harmonious vein of sentiments shall once more thrill through the whole of society, as in the days of Homer, Aeschylus, of Phidias, and even of Dante. After so profound and comprehensive a view of the progress of human society in the past, of which the future can only be a prolongation, it is natural to ask, to what use does he put this survey as a basis of practical recommendations? Such recommendations he certainly makes, though, in the present treatise, they are of a much less definite character than in his later writings. But we miss a necessary link. There is a break in the otherwise close concatenation of his speculations. We fail to see any scientific connection between his theoretical explanation of the past progress of society, and his proposals for future improvement. The proposals are not, as we might expect, recommended as that towards which human society has been tending and working through the whole of history. It is thus that thinkers have usually proceeded who formed theories for the future grounded on historical analysis of the past. Tocqueville, for example, and others, finding, as they thought, through all history a steady progress in the direction of social and political equality, argued that to smooth this transition, and make the best of what is certainly coming, is the proper employment of political foresight. We do not find M. Comte supporting his recommendations by a similar line of argument. They rest as completely, each on its separate reasons of supposed utility, as with philosophers who, like Bentham, theorize on politics without any historical basis at all. The only bridge of connection which leads from his historical speculations to his practical conclusions is the inference that since the old powers of society, both in the region of thought and of action, are declining and destined to disappear, leaving only the two rising powers, positive thinkers on the one hand, leaders of industry on the other, the future necessarily belongs to these, spiritual power to the former, temporal to the latter. As a specimen of historical forecast, this is very deficient, for are there not the masses as well as the leaders of industry? And is not theirs also a growing power? Be this as it may, M. Comte's conceptions of the mode in which these growing powers should be organized and used are grounded on anything rather than on history, and we cannot but remark a singular anomaly in a thinker of M. Comte's calibre, after the ample evidence he has brought forward of the slow growth of the sciences, all of which except the mathematical-astronomical couple are still, as he justly thinks, in a very early stage, it yet appears as if, to his mind, the mere institution of a positive science of sociology were tantamount to its completion, as if all the diversities of opinion on the subject, which set mankind at variance, were solely owing to its having been studied in the theological or the metaphysical manner, and as if when the positive method which has raised up real sciences on other subjects of knowledge is similarly employed on this, divergence would at once cease and the entire body of positive social inquirers would exhibit as much agreement in their doctrines as those who cultivate any of the sciences of inorganic life. 
Happy would be the prospects of mankind if this were so. A time such as M. Comte reckoned upon may come. Unless something stops the progress of human improvement, it is sure to come. But after an unknown duration of hard thought and violent controversy, the period of decomposition which has lasted, on his own computation, from the beginning of the fourteenth century to the present, is not yet terminated. The shell of the old edifice will remain standing until there is another ready to replace it, and the new synthesis is barely begun, nor is even the preparatory analysis completely finished. On other occasions M. Comte is very well aware that the method of a science is not the science itself, and that when the difficulty of discovering the right processes has been overcome, there remains a still greater difficulty, that of applying them. This, which is true of all sciences, is truest of all in sociology, the facts being more complicated, and depending on a greater concurrence of forces than in any other science, the difficulty of treating them deductively is proportionally increased, while the wide difference between any one case and every other, in some of the circumstances which affect the result, makes the pretense of direct induction usually no better than empiricism. It is, therefore, out of all proportion, more uncertain than in any other science, whether two inquirers equally competent and equally disinterested will take the same view of the evidence, or arrive at the same conclusion. When to this intrinsic difficulty is added the infinitely greater extent to which personal or class interests and predilections interfere with impartial judgment, the hope of such accordance of opinion among sociological inquirers as would obtain, in more deference to their authority, the universal assent which M. Comte's scheme of society requires, must be adjourned to an indefinite distance. M. Comte's own theory is an apt illustration of these difficulties, since, though prepared for these speculations, as no one had ever been prepared before, his views of social regeneration, even in the rudimentary form in which they appear above ground in this treatise, not to speak of the singular system into which he afterwards enlarged them, are such as perhaps no other person of equal knowledge and capacity would agree in. Were those views, as true as they are, questionable, they could not take effect until the unanimity among positive thinkers, to which he looked forward, shall have been attained, since the mainstream of his system is a spiritual power composed of positive philosophers, which only the previous attainment of the unanimity in question could call into existence. A few words will sufficiently express the outline of his scheme. A corporation of philosophers receiving a modest support from the State, surrounded by reverence, but peremptorily excluded not only from all political power or employment, but from all riches, and all occupations except their own, are to have the entire direction of education, together with not only the right and duty of advising and reproving all persons respecting both their public and their private life, but also a control, whether authoritative or only moral, is not defined, over the speculative class itself, to prevent them from wasting time and ingenuity on inquiries and speculations of no value to mankind, among which he includes many now in high estimation, and compel them to employ all their powers on the investigations which may be judged, at the time, to be the most urgently important to the general welfare. The temporal government which is to coexist with this spiritual authority consists of an aristocracy of capitalists, 
whose dignity and authority are to be in the ratio of the degree of generality of their conceptions and operations, bankers at the summit, merchants next, and then manufacturers and agriculturalists at the bottom of the scale. No representative system or other popular organization, by way of counterpoise to this governing power, is ever contemplated. The checks relied upon for preventing its abuse are the counsels and remonstrances of the spiritual power, and unlimited liberty of discussion and comment by all classes of inferiors. Of the mode in which either set of authorities should fulfil the office assigned to it, little is said in this treatise, but the general idea is, while regulating as little as possible by law to make the pressure of opinion directed by the spiritual power so heavy on every individual, from the humblest to the most powerful, as to render legal obligation, in as many cases as possible, needless. Liberty and spontaneity on the part of individuals form no part of the scheme. M. Comte looks on them with as great jealousy as any scholastic pedagogue, or ecclesiastical director of consciences. Every particular of conduct, public or private, is to be open to the public eye, and to be kept by the power of opinion in the course which the spiritual corporation shall judge to be the most right. This is not a sufficiently tempting picture to have much chance of making converts rapidly, and the objections to the scheme are too obvious to need stating. Indeed, it is only thoughtful persons to whom it will be credible that speculations leading to this result can deserve the attention necessary for understanding them. We propose in the next essay to examine them as part of the elaborate and coherent system of doctrine, which M. Comte afterwards put together for the reconstruction of society. Meanwhile, the reader will gather from what has been said that M. Comte has not, in our opinion, created sociology. Except his analysis of history, to which there is much to be added, but which we do not think likely to be ever, in its general features, superseded. He has done nothing in sociology which does not require to be done over again, and better. Nevertheless, he has greatly advanced the study. Besides the great stores of thought of various and often eminent merit, with which he has enriched the subject, his conception of its method is so much truer and more profound than that of any one who preceded him, as to constitute an era in its cultivation. If it cannot be said of him that he has created a science, it may be said truly that he has, for the first time, made the creation possible. This is a great achievement, and with the extraordinary merit of his historical analysis, and of his philosophy of the physical sciences, is enough to immortalize his name. But his renown with posterity would probably have been greater than it is now likely to be, if after showing the way in which the social science should be formed, he had not flattered himself that he had formed it, and that it was already sufficiently solid for attempting to build upon its foundation the entire fabric of the political art. End of Part 1G Recording by Bill Borst